0: Knockback is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to CollinsLastStand.com. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Big Dagan Moriarty. Dagan, <laughs> thank you for joining me today. Tea for two and two
1: for tea, me <laughs> you and you and me
0: man what a what an interesting topic you've chosen here i can't wait to
1: <laughs> it's a good one right to talk speaking about of it. tea i got my dunkin donuts iced coffee Kyle. now listen
0: yeah is dunkin yeah.
1: donuts coffee actually coffee a time to- a topic for a different time perhaps but i enjoy it in any event that just reminded me of my little tea reference there
0: All right well thank you for that <laughs> uh, aside appreciate that
1: <laughs> no problem It's a,
0: that it's a non sequitur, very much like Grey Gardens is one long 100 minute non sequitur. And that's our topic <laughs> for the day. But before we get into that, of course, let us introduce you to our podcast, our weekly retro and nostalgia podcast called Knockback. It's live each and every week on free feeds, of course, but you can get it a week early and ad free by supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand, where thousands of you do and we appreciate you very, very much. Today's episode of our show is dedicated to the very unusual 1975 documentary that takes place on our beloved Long Island called Gray Gardens, one of the most famous documentaries of all time. And I think actually the only documentary we've covered so far on this show, and it might actually be one of the only documentaries we ever really do cover on this show. So we just have to uh, see how that goes in the future. Dig. But before we get into the topic at hand and everything, how's it going in your life? What's happening with you? Talk to me a little bit.
1: Everything's going good. Yeah, not bad. We're in the throes of election time here in the U.S. <laughs> anyway, I envy everybody else in every other part of the world who may be listening. Yeah, man, it's, go- it's, it's kind of crazy, kind of trying to pay attention, trying not to pay attention to everything until the results just finally mm. come in. You know, there's something that seems a little bit, I don't know, like it's not really worth paying attention until those final results are in, but I can't. I'm finding myself sort of enthralled like I keep checking the television, I keep checking the various news outlets where the, where everybody's weighing in, where each state is with their collective electoral votes. It's just it's a little bit I know there's a lot of people apparently like that aren't sleeping and really can't get any rest until the results are in. I'm not that you know, I'm not that on edge, but I have to say, my curiosity is really piqued. I didn't think it was going to be this close, I have to say. And I wanted to get your take on it. Where do you come in, Kyle? How are you feeling about the whole thing? I wanted to take your temperature on everything going on. You know, how are you feeling about it on the whole?
0: I'm feeling, I don't know, fine. I mean, I must admit that I abstained. I did not vote this year.
1: Oh, I didn't know that.
0: I had no interest in voting in this election at all my take moving forward will be give me someone (laughs) worth voting for. I'm not going to go and vote for anyone. So I didn't do that. But Virginia went for Biden, which was predictable. But yeah, it's it's turning out kind of uh, the way I thought it was would. I actually put out a electoral map on the second the day before the election predicting what would happen. And my predictions are almost entirely accurate so far. So, you know, not that that really takes a lot of effort. I thought it was pretty obvious that Biden would win. But I agree that it's much closer than I thought it would be. And I think that for the first half of last night's returns, it was looking like Trump was going to win pretty easily. I think that this is a surprise for everyone involved. Certainly pollsters taking another bruise for being so catastrophically wrong, but also massive turnout. I think that the two highest getting president, you know, a, the the two presidential candidates that have acquired the most votes in the history of the United States now are both candidates from this year. Wow. So that's amazing. Yeah. So it's great that people are getting out and and voting because we saw some reversal with Obama, even when he ran against and, and such and with Clinton. So the, it's good that people got out there and made their voices heard or whatever. But I think that the die is somewhat cast. I think it's going to be close, but I think Biden will end up picking it up. And I, I was pretty clear that I think that this is our bet. I haven't I don't have the problem with Trump that a lot of not a lot, but some other people have with him. I don't think he's like the devil incarnate or anything. I just don't necessarily think that we need a man like this, this kind of boisterous, brazen person wh- who has a flimsy re- relationship with the truth and, is vain and all that. I just don't think it's the person we want in charge of us. And I think the best chance of us resetting to some sort of normalcy and trying again for more rational conservatism, in my mind, is for Biden to win. So that was kind of what I was hoping for. But from a political I was talking to Micah about this from a political science perspective and a historical perspective, which I obviously analyzed everything throughout when I was watching Trump looking like he was going to win. I was like, this is incredible, Yeah. I I can't believe this is actually going to happen again. He was down like basically ten points right nationally. So obviously people are lying to pollsters and pollsters are wrong. And there was some last minute movement. And who really knows? But yeah, it looks like Joe Biden at the time we're recording this. I I'm, I would be confident saying Joe Biden will win. But, you know, I don't know. I, I must say a little bit of. I don't want to say totalitarianism. I don't know that that's really the right word, but a little bit of strong man stuff kind of coming out of Trump last night. I was actually watching his speech live last night. It was at like two thirty in the morning. Oh, wow. And I was just I was just laying on the couch smoking a joint and he finally came on to talk. And I was like, wow, this is I was like kind of just staring at the TV like, wow, like he's really going to do it. He's really going to kind of contest the the veracity of the results. And The thing that he needs to understand, of course, and that I think we all kind of understand is it's not up to him. I mean, the president doesn't choose the president. He votes like everyone else, but he doesn't choose the president. The secretaries of state in the various states certify the election, and that's the way it goes. So whoever wins, wins, you know, that's just the way it is. And, and, uh, you know, I think that the the ironic thing, not to get too political, we can move into the topic after this, but (laughs) is... uh, I I did expect him to lose Arizona and I did predict predict that, but he's losing Arizona pretty badly. And it seems like it's because he talked too much shit about John McCain. And it's really interesting how our federal republic is kind of coming to bear in, ver- in various ways, like. Hispanic voters in Florida helped Trump win Florida and Texas, right? So people didn't expect that. But in Arizona, where there's also a huge Hispanic population, they're voting more for uh, for Biden there because of the the long acrimonious relationship between Arizona's favorite son and now deceased and Donald Trump. And sure. it's just really interesting to see the way all those things manifest. Meanwhile, Virginia would easily be red if not for just Fairfax County and, and everything near Washington, D.C., which votes, you know, they all work for the government and they vote overwhelmingly for the government. So. So, yeah, it's an interesting ordeal. Uh, we'll see how it all shakes out, hopefully peacefully and without much more much more of an issue. But yeah, hope everyone out there made their voices heard if they wanted to. But I'm not one of these guys. I saw your tweet yesterday and I thought it was really funny on Election Day about like how how many times are people going to like say like, go vote, vote, <laughs> make sure to vote. It's like, shut up. <laughs> so I made sure not to do that. And then I actually tweeted out today that everyone should go vote. So.
1: <laughs> and
0: that wasn't an
1: ironic tweet. That was a that was a meaningful tweet that you should that you should go vote a day late. That was It was supposed to be (laughs)
0: ironic. It was supposed to be stupid. (laughs) I I thought it was amazing. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so that's it. So, Dave, how are we going to go into this episode before we move into the topic? Do we have anything planned for the top of this one? No. So no opening. I just want to keep you guys and
1: gals up to speed on fan versus fan. Just a recap or an update. So fan versus fan championship edition hyper fighting. By the way, if you guys don't get that reference, I'm not sure we can be friends anymore. So just keep that in mind. Anyway, we had a slight snafu during the week, Kyle. I didn't even talk to you about this yet. Nothing, not too big of a deal, but a slight kink in the works. Nothing to worry your pretty little heads about. But one of our selected finalists can't participate, as it turns out. Life has become a little too busy, a bit too hectic, alas. Many of us can relate to that. But never fear, a listener of ours knew another listener who is actually also a round one winner of Fan versus Fan, incidentally, who he thought would be interested in stepping in, and he was. So we have our replacement, and it's all set for next week. So next week will be our tag team battle between myself, let's recap here, between myself, one team on one side, we have me, and we have Matthew Danielson, and we're taking on Alexis, Anaya, and now... Well, actually, let me me put we're taking, we're we're putting in a sub for Alexis. So we're taking on Jordan and a mystery opponent who shall remain unnamed until next week. So next week will be our last fan versus fan championship edition, final tag team battle. Right after that, the Twitter poll will go live for the better part of a week and we'll usher out the fan versus fan segment, which I think fan versus fan will always, always remind me of the coronavirus and of the COVID period and a distraction to get me through a bummer of an era. So I appreciate you guys very much. But that's it. No other opening, Kyle. I just wanted to get you, make sure you guys knew it was happening, keep you uh, in the loop, as it were, and uh, I think we're free to go into our topic anytime you're ready.
0: All right, right on. Well, Dagan selected this topic. It's Grey Gardens, and not surprisingly, you know, when I put out the the requests for comments and whatever we didn't get very many for this show that's not a huge surprise because it is a, an obscure topic but my hope with this topic in Dagan selection is that it turns people on to something that I think you should all absolutely watch because it's so interesting and fascinating in a lot of different ways so uh, we'll talk about all of that of course but before we do I do want to read out a couple of these things from the audience we'll work in some more of their stuff later Charlie Frazier wrote into us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Last Stand and says, Good day, Kings. I haven't written into the Patreon in a long time, but my soul lit up when I saw you'd be covering Grey Gardens. Hey. I'm an ex-film student here in Australia, and Grey Gardens was the first documentary to capture my attention enough to distract me from the ecstatic year-long years-long love affair I had with narrative film and TV. For instance, Mad Men, my favorite show of all time, was still on the air at this time. Grey Gardens... Paints a very simple picture, a mother and daughter living an isolated life in a New York mansion, yet a story doesn't need to be told because it's all plainly there. The minute we start to observe, it's hilarious, heartbreaking and beautiful, and it showed me the raw power of documentary storytelling, which has since become my primary interest. And then Landon Reich wrote into us and said, howdy, C&D. This was a deep cut. I just got done watching it on HBO Max, and I'm not sure I have much to say about it. Stuff filmed in the mid 70s has a strange feel, but I'm definitely excited to hear why Dagan chose it. And about any connection you guys may have to the house or to the family that's featured. So, Dave, let's start with Landon's question. Sure. Which is why I was surprised to see this on your list, although I was pleasantly surprised to see it. I thought it was a great selection. What made you want to pull this incredibly obscure? It's really not incredibly obscure, but for our show, it actually is really obscure. This this mid 70s documentary. Yeah, what made you want to choose it?
1: It is an odd topic. It is definitely a, an interesting choice and an odd choice maybe for our show. It, it's sort of one of those IPs or one of those properties or pieces of media that floats somewhere between nerd culture centric and film buff centric. It's something that I think is iconic, but something interesting that not all of our listeners may have seen so far. And what intrigues me about it is... Before you guys hear, you know, the entirety of our our conversation, if I just told you a brief synopsis of the movie right now and told you to go watch it, I think it would be even hard to get you to watch it, to get you to see it, because what's the hook there? It sounds like a really weird thing, even in trying to describe why it's so great. It's one of those things you almost have to take on in good faith, like, okay, Dagan and Colin or all these people say it's one of the best documentaries of all time or it's it's such an entertaining piece of media. It sounds really weird, but you almost have to like trump, just trump your own reservations and just go watch it, even though it sounds like an odd way to spend the better part of an hour and a half or two hours or whatever, because it is really wonderful, but it's very hard to articulate and describe why. For me, this film is the movie that put documentaries on my radar. I had seen documentary films before, I saw I saw this movie, of course, but this was the one that really got the hooks in and got me interested in the genre as a whole. If I'm remembering correctly for me, Kyle, I think it was our sister Dana who first turned me on to Grey Garden sometime, if I'm not mistaken, in the early to mid aughts, if I recall correctly. So anywhere between like 2002 and 2006 is the first time I saw this movie. I'm not sure what put it on my radar 20 years after its initial inception or what put it on Dana's radar, or what brought it into you know popular parlance at that time. But I credit this movie with at least partially getting me interested in reading biographies too, which I've been devouring for like the better part of 20 years. Oddly enough, it's just that whole thing, I think, of having the chance to learn about people or certain people and getting to know them intimately. And this whole idea of a candid sort of behind-the-scenes look at somebody's life. You know, what makes somebody tick, how they live, the ins and outs of their relationships, their philosophies, all of that. And Grey Gardens was kind of my introduction to that sort of thing. It really started my love affair with documentary film. And it started my fascination with learning about people and what I find interesting about people. And it's beyond just, you know, like I'll hit the biography section of a library and look for certain books and whatever tickles my fancy. But it's beyond learning about a person just because they're famous. It's getting to know the person beyond just what they're famous for. You know, if you think of actors or directors or athletes or artists, writers, poets, philosophers, politicians, whatever, getting to know all the ingredients and the texture that forms and informs a person. And I think this movie was my kind of introduction, my first foray into that world of not watching a fictional movie or reading a work of fiction or science fiction or a video game or a cartoon series or something that I traditionally be into, anime. It was learning about, you know, it was sort of my a foray into real life and real life beyond your immediate purview, you know, everything you were familiar with, the people that you're familiar with, the place that, the places that you're familiar with, going beyond that and learning about the larger world. And in a weird way, this film was really my first sort of I guess the first time I really, really recognized that, probably also kind of dovetailed with my age at the time, you know, in my early to mid you know, yeah, I guess early to mid-20s. And like you said, Kyle, our first conversation on knockback that centers around a documentary film. And I think if we're just going to do, you know, if we're going to do one, there's a lot of great ones, but if we're going to do one for a fledgling voyage, I mean, I can't think of a, a better, greater, more iconic one. And of course you already said, don't forget an opportunity for us to focus and talk about a little about a little bit about long Island lore an excuse to talk about an iconic long Island story And Shout out to our Long Island listeners, by the way. You guys are on my mind. I know we have a lot of you guys out there in Nassau and Suffolk County. I saw that New York came down blue for the Democrats, and I saw Long Island was colored in blue on that map, but they may be sort of putting that in together clumping that in together the five yeah others. i
0: think long island actually i think long island actually voted for trump they did but okay that's interesting With which, which which they did they did last time too so. i wish they would color Not that a huge separately
1: surprise. you know what i mean because it's such a big i know i know they don't they, they're just generalizing the 50 states but um yeah so and you know I, I you know we'll take any chance to talk about long island but for me that's why this movie was sort of fresh on my mind it had a big effect on me, and it really opened up a world of documentary films. I've seen so many great documentaries as a result of this. This was the movie that really got me searching for those. And so I thought we, and, and it's just fun, and it's funny. And as Colin said in the text before we started, it's, it should be a really just a fun, light conversation, something easy to talk about, easy to reflect on. And I do highly recommend it. If you guys haven't seen it, It's a really great watch. And I'll give you a hint. It's even on this film and the follow-up 2006 film, which is kind of just like another, a sort of a second, like a Grey Gardens part two. It's called the Beals of Grey Gardens. They just took a bunch of archival footage that had never been used and put together another feature out of it. And both of them are on YouTube right now, even as we speak for free, nice quality, HD quality, I believe totally worth a watch. And who knows, it might open up the world of documentary film to you guys and girls, too, who haven't really gone down that road yet.
0: Sure. And it's funny because. I've been into documentaries like as long as I can remember and long before I ever saw this film. And I think that Dana probably is the reason that I saw it, too. And you were asking, like, why was it around then? And I think it's because The Beals of Grey Gardens came out in 2006 like the archival sequel. And I think that it was in the news at that time. So that might have been why people were being introduced or reintroduced to it. But sure, I remember renting it on the old Netflix DVD service. uh, Probably 12 or 13 years ago now and watching it for the first time. That was the only time I had ever seen it before I watched it again in preparation for this show. And it's what I guess they call the direct cinema style of documentary documentary filmmaking, which is to say there is no or very little insertion of any story or narrative. And it's basically just fly on the wall filming of what's going on. And there really is no branch uh, from which the narrative can sprout off of. It just goes in whatever direction it wants to with no real plan. So it's a hard way to make a documentary. But apparently these two filmmakers, brothers, Albert and David Mazel's found some success doing this together with a couple of documentaries in the late 60s and early 70s before this was uh, coming out. And in fact, this documentary was going to be something else entirely, which we'll get into at some point. But it did make me want to see their previous documentaries, which I have not looked up yet. Salesman is the big one that a lot of people talk about from 1969, which is about door to door salesmen. And uh, Gimme Shelter is a fairly famous documentary about the Rolling Stones and the footage that they used in it was actually used, I think, in a murder case. Yes. If you read about it, which is pretty interesting as well. But it was sad to read because Albert, both Albert and David Mazels, the brother, the brother team, documentary team. They're both dead now. But David, the younger one, died back in 1987. And the older one, Albert, died only in 2015. So he was he had passed away for a substantial amount of time. Uh, He was only alive for about 10 years after this film came out, which I thought was pretty interesting. But nonetheless, it introduced me, even though I was into documentaries, into this more direct cinema style documentary uh, stylings. And a lot of, I guess, documentarians cite this still as a really meaningful and important film in the progression of their art. And I'm just such a huge nerd for documentaries. And I think that this is one of the examples of what I've told people many times in my past dig, which is I'll watch a documentary about virtually anything. And th- this documentary is almost impossible to even describe what it is or why it's interesting. <laughs> it's something you kind of have to just go into and understand that it's a slice in time for these random this, these two random women. And uh, I really do believe that a, st- a story told properly is what's most important. And therefore, any story if told properly can be interesting. And And this is one of those examples while something really uh, spectacular and flashy and whatever might be really boring if it's not done right. So even though it's filmed in the mid 70s and it has the trappings of that kind of production style, I actually think it's still really well done and I'm excited to, to talk further about it. So, Dig, let me kick it back over to you. This film takes place, was filmed in the the early to mid 70s, released 1975. I think it actually was at Sundance in 1976 and it it garnered a, a, a lot of attention from people. But I'm wondering if you can kind of set up what this documentary is specifically about and why it drew so many people in at the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say as a real, as a micro brief, it's the adventures of a mother and a daughter with the same exact name. (laughs) That says, that actually says a lot, especially if you haven't seen it yet. Remember what I just said? Because that is the eccentricity and the weirdness that this movie speaks to and the, and the, the characters that we're dealing with. But on a larger... On a larger scale, I would summarize this movie in my own words this way. I would say it's the story of two women, a mother and a daughter team who ultimately walk away from their positions of wealth and power, rejecting the expectations of their aristocratic backgrounds to live their lives as they see fit. It's the tale of two people who truly desire to be themselves and who live life only for themselves and for each other. And, I, you know, I, I would even say maybe it's about two outcasts of the upper class who march to the beat of their own drummer or ultimately abandoning the writs and the glamour of their pasts in order to embrace their true bohemian bohemian natures. And, you know, I think it's a little bit some would say I know Albert Mazel's, who co-created the film and and directed the film and and filmed all of this over six weeks, says he saw it he often saw it as a love story between a mom and a daughter. And I think partially it is that, but there's a lot to talk about in that love story and things that maybe bubble beneath the surface and different ways to read things. I also did a lot of research uh, behind the scenes of what was going on in this scenario outside of what we see on the camera and what we hear. So we could talk about that too but you know it's about two basically new york socialites a mom and a daughter little edie and big leedy uh, big edie bouvier beale and their sort of misadventures
0: yeah and and it's in so the really relevant point here to keep in mind and we haven't pointed this out yet is the reason these people were interesting is not only because especially during this time in the 70s you kind of have to put yourself into into history's point of view here these women are related intimately related to Jacqueline Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy, at this time Jackie Kennedy Onassis. Right. Edith Ewing uh Bouvier Beale is Jackie's aunt. So her mom's sister. And Edith Bouvier Beale, the daughter, little Edie who died in 2002 is therefore Jackie Kennedy's first cousin. Yes. So the the it's not just these two randos or these two socialite debutantes. It's that they're intimately related to a through marriage. They're not Kennedy's. They're not even on They're Bouvier's or whatever. That's how you say her name, I think. Right. That was yeah, um, that's right. Jackie Kennedy's uh, maiden name. So they had like some proximity to that New England, Massachusetts power. And that is why they're relevant. And I have to say that. I'm a little surprised by your interpretation of the film, and that's why I'm really excited to talk to you about it because I see this film and I saw, I remember seeing it at the time the same way, but it really reinstilled in me having seen it again. I think it's an incredibly sad and depressing film. And uh, I don't really interpret their their being out of the circle as their choice. It seems like they were kind of catapulted out of it primarily through Edith's divorce from her husband, Phelan Bale, and their connection to the Kennedys, too, and then how that affected Edie, uh, little you know Edith.
1: Sure, sure. Little
0: Edie. So I don't quite interpret it the same. Like, I don't quite see it. I don't know if you meant to come off this way, but I don't quite see it as sunny as you do. In fact, I see it as quite dark, this movie, and sad. And in fact, I wrote, and I don't know if this will... I, I, uh, resonate with people or resonate with you, but I wrote this in my notes in big letters. They're like splicers from Bioshock. Like they, they ju- every time I was seeing them, like they're singing and dancing and acting weird in this building. They haven't cleaned it. They haven't left it. They're just like up to their own devices. And I'm like, they're like splicers. They're just literally nuts, right? And <laughs> and they're they're not. Apparently, they weren't drinkers or smokers. So like, I'm not saying that they were abusing anything. They might have been abusing some sort of more primitive um, psychotic drugs. I don't know. But clearly, I, from from my point of view, from my layman's point of view, I have a BA. I don't have a I'm not a doctor, but it seems like little Edith is. Bipolar or borderline. I don't know what the older woman is. But I would love to know more about the mom specifically because the mom married and then basically got left by her husband. And that was the beginning and the end for her. Yes. So it's so it's a little interesting that you see it a little bit more, let's say, romantically than I do, because I see this, especially the birthday scene as being like the most brutal. It's just some of it's just pretty brutal to watch. So I'm really excited to to jump more into it with you.
1: Yeah, it's going to be fun.
0: The name Grey Gardens comes for it's it's kind of a nice double entendre because it kind of describes the melancholy, in my opinion, of the movie. But it's called that because it this so basically like just to explain everything to people, because Long Island's a big place. Their house is out in East Hampton, so out towards the end of Long Island, very exclusive, rich area. And they have a home amongst other homes that has been left in kind of squalor, like these really beautiful beach homes with and a very long island imagery if you're from there you know they have the cedar siding and you can see the 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 viney poison ivy growing on everything along the sand and it's just just very long island when you look at it if you're from there the, the beach house itself the floor of the beaches and the ocean and just the the nature and the lawn chairs and the way the sun falls and the color and the saturation a lot of it just reminded me of that place it could just be me being nuts but A lot of it did remind me of that place. And so out east, especially in the 70s, but still today, it's very exclusive. Our dad lives out there now. But back in the day, it was even more exclusive, I would say, and certainly more secluded. And so these two women were kind of just left there after Big Edith's separation from the lawyer that she was married to, whose name again is Phelan Bale. It seems that in the separation, she got the house, Gray Gardens, and then no alimony. So they didn't really have much. They were house poor, I guess, in some way, but like really house poor. And so over the decades, this estate fell into complete disrepair. And if you look at it from the outside, like some of the shots they got, the uh, Mazels got are amazing, like some beach houses along the water and then basically just this It looks like this forbidden jungle garden, basically, (laughs) yeah, uh, on the water. And so it's really, really fascinating. And one thing that we should point out, and Rick Lewis wrote into us about this, so I'll let him talk about is like what the the filmmakers had to do to even get access to this. And so he says, hello, brothers Moriarty, I watched this movie tonight because it's pretty out of left field from your usual choices. And it seems like you might not get as much audience interaction as usual. You're right, Rick. I think the thing that stands out to me most is that this film that this was filmed after a thirty two thousand dollar cleanup that removed over one thousand bags of trash and filmmakers still had to wear flea collars to enter the house. It's come a long way and it's now a two hundred fifty thousand dollar summer rental house had uh, seen quite the reversal back to its original splendor. So while this movie may be somewhat sad, at least the house has a happy ending. Um, that's true. So when we see the house in the 70s, dig, we see this house in complete disrepair, but it's actually in better shape than it was in the early 70s. When they were basically being threatened by Suffolk County, where we're from, the the house was they were basically threatening to raise the house. It was in such bad shape. It was it was infested. And as we see by raccoons and and stray cats and obviously fleas and all the vermin and and bugs that come along with that. So they were in bad shape to begin with. And it does raise a lot of questions of like how they were living, because it seems like they were basically abandoned to their own. They were abandoned decades ago. I mean, they were living like this for decades. Yeah, since uh, since at least the war. And it seems like um, actually little Edith moved to Manhattan and then moved into the house in 1952. And it seems like that's when the madness really began. So let's talk about the characters themselves. Talk to me a little bit about Edith Ewing Bouvier Beale, Big Edie, born 1895. She died just a few years after this movie came out in 1977. Like I said, she's Jackie Kennedy's uh, or Jackie Bouvier's aunt. And she was married to Phelan Bale, who was a lawyer, the lawyer was working with Edith's dad, which made it even more awkward, I think. And they they initially lived in Madison Avenue. They acquired Grey Garden 1923, separated 1931, divorced 1946. So, yeah, pretty crazy story about a woman kind of just left to time.
1: Yeah, such her story is really at the center of this whole escapade big that's big Edith story and she's such an interesting character and I did a lot of research into everything that happened and tried to find out as much as I could because the movie sets up a lot of really poignant and interesting questions but it doesn't answer everything so it's kind of beholden on the viewer to go back and see what you could get and with the you know with the internet you could learn so much and it was so interesting to find out about her and I do think you're right Kyle I think this is an interesting story because I think Ultimately, mile-high mile, mile high perspective, Big Edie basically did what she wanted to do, and Little Edie was—and there's a lot of texture and nuance to this, but Little Edie ultimately is the victim. Big Edie is the one who sets up this whole scenario. Now, she married—as you said, she married a man named Phelan Beale in 1917 who was—now, Big Edie was already of the aristocracy. She was already very well-to-do, wealthy. Her parents were socialites her dad was a big time lawyer and financier and Phelan, her husband her eventual the man who would eventually be her husband was a was a law partner with her father so she was already integrated into this into new york high society but i think what ended up happening was she's always been the type to march to her own to her or her own drummer She had three kids, ultimately, Little Edie being the oldest. Then she had two sons, Phelan Beale Jr. and Bouvier Beale. So now one of her sons ended up quoting, eventually saying that her mom was, his mom was the original hippie. She was just really sort of a nonconformist and a bohemian, even though she was of the elite. She was, uh, you know, of the upper class. She was uh, a socialite ultimately or at least they, they wanted her to fit into that mold. She always sort of sort of bucked against being one of those people, doing those things, being involved in those parties and that sort of eschewing and rejecting that extravagance and all of that stuff. And I think that was she basically created she she basically made her husband miserable to, to you know to be honest. She had all these high society expectations as the wife of a wealthy man and she didn't want to fit into she didn't want that role she wanted to just reject all of those things and I think over the years just made him miserable and never I I think never even just always put herself first I don't think she ever really thought of her children and it all boiled down to it was really interesting to read about because it all boiled down to her husband's feelings frustrations with her and she her youngest son got married and i think it was in 1942 and she basically showed up late to the son's wedding and pulled this stunt which is sort of typical for her i think and dre- you know she was dressed as an opera singer and Wanted to be the center of attention, even though it was her son's wedding, her youngest son's wedding. And that's what, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for her husband. And he, even though they've been separate, they had been separated all the way back as early as 1931, he finally divorced her in 1946. But basically, it all boiled down to that point of the stunt she pulled at her youngest son's wedding. And it seems like when he divorced her, he basically gave her the house in order to get rid of her, get her out of the city, get her out of Manhattan, and gave her Grey Gardens, which was a 28-room mansion. And as you said, Kyle, gave her child support, but no alimony payments. So basically set her up with a trust that was going to expire at some point. But it was going to be enough time to get her out of, basically get her out of their sight, you know, and get, you know, stop her from being an embarrassment. Basically, cast her out to the hamptons and now she was going to be an outcast and she would be out of sight out of mind they wouldn't she wouldn't embarrass the family anymore and i think that a lot of people say that's why they sort of did the way you know did it that way they did it and feeling did it the way they did it was to get rid of her and i think ultimately what happened was she didn't want to be alone you know she was scared of being alone out there and being abandoned by her family and being abandoned by her children And she made, I think at 24 years old, Little Edie, she basically made Little Edie come back home, quote unquote, to the Hamptons to be with her. Uh, Under the guise of she was afraid for her daughter's health. Her daughter was an aspiring actress, an aspiring model. She said she wasn't eating eating enough. They go into this a little bit in the film. She was saying that she was worried about her her weight loss and worried about that she, her, her diet and that she wasn't getting the nutrition that she needed and made little Edie come home under the guise of taking care of her. But they say it was a codependent thing where she was just afraid to be alone and basically had the daughter in her grips forever. And cat, you know, basically warding off potential suitors and people that were interested in marrying little Edie and stuff like that. So there's some sort of dark, possibly insidious things going on beneath the surface where it was all the world that Big Edie had created. and little Edie was essentially the captive. You know, she was sort you know, in sort of, um, she was basically being controlled by her mom in this weird codependent relationship where maybe after a while, it was sort of a a bit of Stockholm syndrome too, where it was like little Edie sort of had her codependent needs on her mom too. I think her mom sort of stripped her of her confidence and little Edie basically became sort of just almost as needy as the mom was. And when we see them, you know, you have to remember when we first meet them in the documentary and we first see them on film, Big Edie is in her late 70s and little Edie is in her mid to late 50s. So, these aren't spring chickens. There's a lot of history that has transpired off film by the time we get to meet them, finally, in the documentary. So there's a lot of history there already that's really, really interesting. But I think really, it comes down to knowing that Big Edie was sort of the puppet master. she was she was definitely pulling the strings. And little Edie was basically along for the ride, if that makes sense,
0: yeah. I think what's funny is that, it's fairly clear that Big Edie, older Edie, is much more cogent, even in the sev- in the 70s when it's his film, than her daughter is. Um, you can see that there's some sort of manipulation at play. And one of the things I wrote down in my notes here, and I'm, I'm wondering if I could communicate it properly, is. Little Edie. if you look at the if you look at her, they show her, obviously, in the you know, in her younger years in the documentary, she was stunning. And it's amazing that she kind of got pulled out of that world in her prime. Who knows what the specific reasons might have been? We know that some of it, like you said, is because of the loneliness and maybe her acting career is failing. And who knows who's telling the truth about the situation that happened back in the early 50s. But I wrote this in my notes and it's something that I hadn't really considered, I guess, although it's somewhat obvious, which is, how does a woman specifically, in this case, when your beauty is a commodity and you're like a debutante or like a socialite and it fades, so your fame has faded because of your proximity to power has lessened, certainly after JFK was assassinated, especially. And then, you know, Jackie Kennedy marries um, Onassis and all of that kind of stuff, who's like Greek and, 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 and all the so they're totally separated from power. And it's like, what happens when you lose all of your currency, even though it's beyond your grasp? Because I was thinking, I'm like, just in another world, little Edie is like a well-known writer, let's say. She only becomes probably better with time. She becomes more respected. She has more time to put out work and become established and all of that. But when you're working in the context of like this ephemera, this idea of, of looks and what is sexy and beautiful. Because like you said, she was a model and I was really taken aback. They were both beautiful in their in their heyday when you look at their pictures uh, during the documentary. But I was like, wow, man, like. She had something to trade on in this world, and you can see the struggle she has in the show. Having long since have to let that go, even though she's totally. She still wears like high heels and these little bathing suits and. It's worth noting that she's bald uh, through some sort of disease she got in her 30s.
1: Yeah, alopecia, right? Is that right? Yeah. Alopecia is when you lose your hair.
0: I believe so. Yeah, yeah. And so it's interesting. I don't know if I'm putting this in, in the right words, but it's hard to conceive a situation where you trade on those various commodities of of fame, of proximity, of physical beauty and all of that. and And then it goes. And it's not like many of us where we. And I'm not trying to diminish little Edie because she obviously has a passion for music, she has a lot of other interests or whatever, but I'm just saying from the perspective of like plying a trade or proving your value or worth in that society or in any society and trying to find your way, the tools she had at her disposal are gone and she had like decades basically to dwell on it by herself with her mom and. It's it's a kind of a shitty thing. It's a hard thing to watch. And I think that she's const, constantly cognizant of it. She's still wearing those fine old garments and these silk dresses and these bathing suits. It almost makes you wonder, like, where did you get some of this shit? Like, was this stuff that is just I don't know enough about old fashioned. I'm sure people will know more by just looking at the bathing suit or looking at the heels or whatever. But it's like, where did this stuff even come from? Have you been dragging this stuff around since World War Two and you know, it's it's just a, sure. it's an interesting kind of situation. And, and so. That's where the splicer kind of Bioshock reference kind of comes in where I'm like these people, they sit in front. She's sitting in front of a mirror, singing, lackadaisically, putting on lipstick and. Walking around and feeding wild animals and doing it's I'm like, Jesus, this really is. It? I mean, I think it's a perfect reference and. So what do you think about that as like kind of little Edie losing her commodities, basically losing her ability to navigate? She goes into her mom at one point for apparently interfering on what she looked at as maybe her only way out of her spinster status, basically, which was this 32 year old guy that she met. It seems kind of dubious, but. I don't know. I, I find her holding set. So what do you think about all that? You can take take it however you want.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, obviously, Kyle, I mean, that's definitely a great point. And I think also not only was little Edie up against big Edie, but so, oppo- you know, supposedly Phelan was really, really strict and really protective of his daughter and really forbid her to do any modeling or sort of dabble in acting and didn't want to, wanted to steer her towards the socialite role and away from any sort of artistic pursuits and forbid her to wear makeup and forbid her to wear high heel shoes. And so there was definitely something going on where there were a lot of restrictions. And I think, you know, she came out of Little Edie, she came out of private schools and finishing schools and sort of a being becoming this budding debutante and the barbazon and dabbling in print modeling and dabbling in acting and dance. She was really into dance. I think basically what you have is you have the father who was really sort of put the kibosh on that early. And then Big Edie, when she realized she was going to be alone, sort of taking her daughter under her wing, under her fold, and basically crushing, it seemed like really crushing, her confidence and her chances at having independence and having her own life, whether that be pursuing dating with would-be suitors or any kind of um, career outside of the purview of the mom. And I think it's that's the type of thing that we really get a little taste of in the movie, but I think was a part much Bigger part of the picture of what had happened with the little the lead, little lady character, but I think there's something also really interesting here. Maybe a little bit of the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, in that there seems to me in this movie. I thought about this late, like maybe yesterday when I was writing my notes, but there seems to be a trade-off here for surrendering a certain posh and privileged lifestyle. And as a result of that surrendering the money, surrendering the wealth, the comfort, you get the reward of pursuing a low-key, low-pressure bohemian lifestyle, you know, the more the life of what you would typically consider the life of an artist. And you get to basically leave the life, you know, perhaps the the life of a wealthy New York socialite wasn't really for them. You know, maybe they just weren't cut out for it. I think that was definitely the thing with Big Edie is like, she just didn't really want that. She was a little too much of a non-conformist. She was a little too much. She had a little too much independence. She had a little too much artist in her, maybe a little too much, you know, that bucked those things of, you know, those conformist things where it was like, maybe, you know, the tennis and the dinner parties, and the cocktail balls, and the country clubs, and the jet setting, they really didn't want, you know, I don't think Big Edie really wanted that. I think it's things that she was exposed to as a very little girl, not just the life that she married into. She was already well accustomed to this life way before she got married to Phelan, and I think she really just wanted to, she wanted her cake and eat it too. You know, she wanted to march to her own drummer, and I think she pulled Little Edie under with her. And it is amazing that Little Edie was this talented. You could see it on film. You know, she's very articulate. She's very philosophical. She has convictions. You know, she has talking points. She's, she talks cohesively about things. She's, she's thoughtful. And I know she's a writer. You know, she was an aspiring writer as well. There's a lot of intelligence there, too. And it is amazing when she was out of, you know, sort of out of captivity from her mom both before the film and after the mom passed away, a couple of years after the the initial film, you know, I think the mom passed away in seventy seven. Big Edie, that she went on to Florida and became a journalist and an editor and sort of um, undertook all those things that she always wanted to do and got her independence. She's a really she's a really interesting character. Not only is she quite charming. And I think there is maybe a little mental illness there for little Edie, too. I don't think she was only victimized by the mom. Maybe, you know, being victimized by the mom is what fed into some of that mental illness because she went to live at Grey Gardens. The mom had been there since the 30s. Little Edie was there from 1952. So by the time this movie starts, we're already talking about 25 years, about 25 years of being together and only basically together in that house, that 28 room mansion, largely in that one bedroom together. And can you, can you imagine all those years together to, you know, just mother and daughter
0: and, you know,
1: just sort of just those two, just those two characters?
0: No, it's complete madness. I mean, that's, that. it's madness. I mean, that, that was kind of my interpretation of the whole situation is I just think it's, it's completely mad. It's madness. And it's unthinkable to spend that much time with one person in that space. I mean, they they have a twenty eight twenty eight room a, a palatial estate, but it seems like it's becoming more and more limited, and they're getting shoved in the in the closer and closer proximity to each other as the place falls into complete sure disrepair. And and you'll note that the documentary itself takes place in only a few places. They have over seventy hours of footage, but it seems like they share some sort of bedroom where I would say seventy percent or so of the documentary takes place. Some of it takes place on one of their porches and. And in their like uh, foyer and all that. So it's it is interesting. And, and I was thinking about that, too, because like they, they have a record player and they have like a radio, but they don't have anything to do. But be, be to be, I guess. And I don't know, I, I guess I'm looking at it through my 21st century, 2020, late 2020 mindset. But I was thinking about that where I'm like, what are they doing? I would fucking lose it. If not only being around one person like that all the time, but just having nothing to do. Can you imagine? No escape, just old clothes, old records. Weird animals. I mean, they they have these cats and raccoons living in their house that they f- actively feed. They show a, a scene of Little Edie literally dumping an entire Wonder Bread loaf. It's
1: <laughs> my favorite
0: scene in like, of like. It's like amazing. It's like just nonchalantly doing it. And then it's to feed these raccoons that are like coming out of the walls to grab it. It's a very strange and unsettling film, but the constant clothing changes and it, it feels very manic. And I think a lot of that has to do specifically with the Maisel's again, direct cinema style, quote unquote, direct cinema style documentaries in which the story's kind of driven by whatever's happening. So it, it comes off as a massive non sequitur. It's a lot of ranting and raving and crying and reminiscing and storytelling and arguing. It's remarkable. And even though we did, I didn't see actually the 2006 kind of sequel to it. The Beals of Grey Garden that we brought up earlier, Grey Gardens that we brought up a little bit earlier. But I would love to go through all of that footage and just see what it is they had with each other and and how they came out with these specific sh- scenes that they wanted to, um, to show off, which I thought was interesting. I want to ask dig about what some of your more memorable scenes are in the movie. I brought up the birthday party scene, which I found so awkward. And it's this kind of detached from reality situation. That's why I'm a little surprised that you don't interpret little Edie as having some some much more serious mental illness. Because they basically invite normal people, a couple of normal people to the house. The house is fucking disgusting. You know, it's almost like a, it's almost like not real. It's incredible. So that scene sticks out in my mind. And of course, always big Edie's glasses like hanging half off of her face and <laughs> and, and little Edie using like she's like, I guess, blind as a back. She's using like a magnifying glass to read things and. Like she there's a scene where she goes on the scale, a scale to weigh herself and then uses binoculars to see (laughs) the number on the scale, which is fucking awesome. It's funny as hell, but it's definitely not supposed to be funny. That's the thing that makes this movie less funny, I think, and more sad is because they're not cognizant of what is funny. This is all dead serious to them. Dead, dead up serious. And so anyway, I I wanted to just call it the birthday scene, which I found incredibly awkward to watch. I'm curious what scenes stick out to you.
1: Yeah, that birthday scene is amazing, and I'll tell you why that's such a great scene. I thought a lot about, about a lot about that scene. It's very different compared to the rest of the film. It happens in the last sort of towards the last part or last third of the film, which is interesting. But first of all, the movie is really wonderful in that there's such a stark juxtaposition between the sort of photos that we see from earlier times from Little E.D. and Big Edie's sort of high society days. We see some pictures. We see some portraits that were painted of them. We see some great photos of their sort of elite status. And then we get that sort of those earlier times versus now the squalor, basically, that the two characters live in in this estate. You know, the garbage. I mean, there's cans. They, they say that there was a five-foot-tall sort of in the corner, a pile of cans, soup cans and cat food cans and everything, five feet tall in the corner of that house at one point. And, you know, we see, we really see what they live in. It really reminded me of, and a lot of people would probably sort of relate to this as well, like my college days, you know, when it was all about your hedonistic pursuits and nothing else matters, you know, just your days of immaturity. We didn't clean we barely cleaned up after ourselves we did the things we enjoyed and we totally wrote off any virtually any sense of responsibility you know you you think you kind of channel your 18-year-old self that's what they're living like in their 70s and their late 50s and for me it's it it was exciting to channel the sort of the first time i saw this movie because you realize okay you have these eccentric ladies older women. They're living together in this house in this abject squalor, basically. And you, you know they have this sort of wealthy, privileged background. They come from some sort of aristocracy. How did they fall? Before you know all of that, before you know the fall from grace, how much of it was intended, how much did they, did they willingly sort of take on this life versus the life that they once led and all of that, you, you know, you see all the cats in the house. You just imagine what that place must smell like. They don't even use cat litter. They lay down newspaper for the cats. You know there's wild animals like possums and raccoons in the house. But the scene Collins referring to is the first time you realize that they're not being, they're not victims of wild animals living in this sort of neglected house that there's no upkeep, and that's falling apart. They're welcoming this. Edie goes up to the attic. Little Edie goes up to the attic. With a loaf of wonder bread and a box full of Purina Cat Chow and dumps it on a huge plate and the raccoons just come out and start eating it. She's feeding them. They're taking care of these animals. That's why they're living there. And you realize like, wow, it's like what? And it makes me think, huh, what parts of this are, you know, just people that are complete are, you know, how much of it is mental illness? How much of it is just people that could not be any further? from the people that they were intended to be? How much of it is laziness? How much of it is just irresponsibility, immaturity? You know, just not, you know, maybe there's part of that person or those two people that is as of yet undeveloped, you know, or maybe they just don't give a shit. And like what parts of each one of those things make up our two Edies? And that was like the most pressing question to me as I watch this was like what and the more you watch it the more you get a little bit more information you get a little more out of it but that Wonder Bread and cat food scene with the raccoons is such a memorable one for me because it really made me realize like that they're not this is their intended lifestyle it's not like oh my woe is me like would somebody please come and fix this house like they're embracing all of this weirdness they're embracing in, in fact, it's dangerous. I mean, raccoons are dangerous animals. You know, they're adorable, but they're, you know, they're dangerous. And there's a scene in the the follow-up film, the 2006 version, the Beals of Grey Gardens, that's amazing because the house goes on fire at one point. And the two filmmakers, David and Albert, have to help put out the fire. It's like basically an electrical fire that starts. And, the you know, the fire the fire department has to come in and it starts up this whole thing again of like, how much of this house is a health code and safety violation. So it kicked off the whole thing again, where it was like they had just come in, Jackie uh, Kennedy and company. And I think the youngest of the Beale brothers came in and basically led, like paid $30,000 to basically restore some of the house and get them new bedding and new towels and all that kind of stuff. So this whole thing, this whole fire thing kicked off a whole nother thing. And There's another thing to me, Kyle, besides just the scenes, I want to talk about the birthday party scene, but there's one, there's a couple of shots in particular in the film where you could see that the two women basically hole up in this room. Why they choose this one bedroom, they have both their beds in there. There's a nightstand between the two beds where they have this, even at that point in the mid seventies, an old fashioned radio. They have like a one burner sort of sterno-styled stove where they boil water and make soup and make corn on the cob and stuff. And they basically hole up in this one room. The two beds, you got the one little stove, you got the lamp, you got the radio, you have a, a bevy of cats. All these, you know, all the clothes because of all the outfit changes and stuff like that. But you see in a couple of shots in particular... There's, they're basically laying on these two mattresses with blankets that they use on top. There's no bedding, there's no bed skirts, there's no bed, you know, there's no sheets fitted to the beds. And you see how disgusting the mattresses are. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you see the filth on these mattresses, like these black stains that are coming, that are, that that have dripped over the side of the bed. And you're like, all right, you know how much ice cream they eat. They Oh, that's the other thing. They have this like college dorm style little mini fridge in that room. Like for some reason, they don't just hole up in the house. They hole up in that particular room upstairs of the, you know, that, that one room of the 28 and you see this filth on the mattress and you're like, is that chocolate ice cream? Is that like a leak? Is that filthy water that's leaked down from the ceiling, a hole in the ceiling? Is that cat excrement, excrement? Is that human shit? Like what? is that and it just it's so visceral and not only is it visually repugnant but then you start to imagine the smell and then you start to realize that the gardener and the assistant gardener and the handyman can't come in the house without you know basically taking like wearing flea protection and then you think of the fleas and then you see them scratching and then you see that they're all covered up all the time because they don't want you to see the flea bites and if you're familiar with Fleas, you know how, you know, insidious and uncomfortable that could be. And then you just think of like the state that they're living in, but how much of that was worth it? You know, why did they hate, you know, and why did they basically reject that world that they came from in order to embrace this basically horrific lifestyle? It's like worse than any situation of you know just as bad as any situation that you would see in any impoverished family living in any ghetto but this is a a mansion you know a how many thousand square foot house in the hamptons in east hampton one of the most celebrated one of the most upper crust neighborhoods in all of the country let alone new york so you just get this you get you get so for as many visceral experiences you get in the film, I think you get questions and it leaves you wanting answers. And it really set me on a deep dive for, you know, scene after scene sends me on a deep dive to get, you know, to learn more about why they endured this for 50 years. And were they in fact, did they see it in fact as enduring it or was this really the life that they, that they desired?
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's almost like. They don't seem quite like hoarders or anything like that, but it reminds me a lot of that show where you kind of just a- ask questions or a lot of the shows actually on those channels where it's like about people that live in squalor or people that are incredibly massively overweight or whatever, and you kind of wonder people that abuse drugs, obviously intervention But you always kind of wonder like how people find themselves in those kinds of situations. And this movie actually feels like almost like the prototype for these types of shows that people watch today. And it's funny that you brought up the whole health code violation stuff, which was a big deal with their house in Suffolk County out on the island. This was in the 70s when no one gave a shit about that stuff. They probably wouldn't have been able to do what they did for so long if it was, say, 50 years accelerated into the future because... While I believe that people should do whatever they really want to do in their own property as long as they're not hurting themselves or each other. There are some exceptions, and I'm sure their neighbors weren't thrilled. And that's what I was thinking about with all their cats, which was like the the, the neighbors must be fucking thrilled that they have cats everywhere and (laughs) these things running around or whatever. But yeah, it, it is just it's funny because even though you can call out scenes or whatever, it really is just one long. It's like almost one long scene. You know, and uh, I wanted to ask you actually about because you brought up some of the other characters. There aren't too many characters in the movie at all, but I want to ask you a little bit about there, th- about Jerry and what you thought about that, <laughs> that character. I thought that character was really interesting because he struck me as like really fashionable. At that time, he was wearing like a DeVoe hat and he had in one scene. He has a sweet Newsday sweatshirt on. But he just seemed like kind of you brought the word bohemian before. He kind of seemed like a little bit ahead of his time, but I don't really understand what his whole angle was. And it was interesting to read about how, how no one could find him for like decades and and all of this kind of stuff. But what did you think about his inclusion and how the women treated him?
1: Oh, dude, he was such an interesting character. And I went on a Jerry Tory deep dive. First of all, <laughs> says he's the distant cousin of Joe Torrey. Formerly of the New York Yankees, I don't know if you knew that, Kyle. So he claims oh, that. Int- I didn't. He claims that mantle. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Yeah, and I've it's probably seen not. Yeah. some modern interviews with the man, and he's a really interesting character. I, I found out a lot about this character, way more than I should have, just because he really piqued my interest. But you know, you know, he's the young kid. I guess he's sixteen or seventeen, maybe even fifteen, when we first meet him in the documentary. And you know there's something not right, because why is this kid... You can understand he's hanging around. He calls himself the assistant gardener. Sometimes he's referred to as the handyman. Apparently, he got wrapped up with Big Edie and offered his services to do things around the house at a certain point and sort of stayed on there. But you're like, why is he hanging out with the old woman? What is this kid's story? There's got to be some sort of trouble there. And it turns out, Kyle... That this was a kid, Long Island kid, from the middle of the island. He actually went to Sachem School District. So he's from somewhere, Middle Island, Islip area, somewhere, and basically ran away from home when he was 15 or 16 because he had an abusive dad. And he ended up out east in East and Southampton because he had an uncle out there who was building houses. And he basically ended up falling in with his uncle and learning like building and construction and stonemasonry from his uncle, who I guess took him under his wing after he left home, and ended up sort of meandering around the Hamptons and ended up at Grey Gardens one day offering his services as a gardener or a handyman. And that's how he fell in with the two Edies. And he's such an interesting character. You learn a little bit more about him in the follow-up film, in the Beals of Grey Gardens, but what's interesting about him is that there's a there's a flirtation going on, mostly on Big Edie's side, but Big Edie is very flirtatious with Little Jerry, and he's underage. You know, not only is she in her late seventies at that point, but he's underage when we first meet him in the in the dock. So that's interesting. And then Little Edie worries that he's basically taking advantage of the mom, and I think she does that on film in the in the first movie, if I'm not mistaken. And she dubs Jerry the Marble Fawn, which is a reference to a romance story by Nathaniel Hawthorne. I don't know any more about it than that. Little Edie was more well-read than me, but I know that's what it references. And he was basically one of the insiders in that house and got to see that and live that. He's in a lot of that archival footage in the two films and probably stuff that was never used as well and he's an interesting touchstone to those two women and these times. He even says there's an account where he recalls Jackie Kennedy Onassis coming out and witnessing sort of the decay of Gray Gardens for the first time. I guess it was when she went out there in the early 70s before she opened up the checkbook and helped them out. When she initially saw the place and she, you know, he he witnessed that whole scene of her getting out of the, the limo and taking off those big dark round shades and looking like she was completely in shock and totally befuddled how it could get like this and that whole thing. And, he, you know, so he he was there to relate a lot of the stories that you may not hear from the Beale women themselves, which is interesting. But he was a great, you know, he's a great character. And he went on to basically... Use that, you know, his whole role in the film or the films as his claim to fame. I know he's a stone sculptor. He's a showing artist. I think he spent time overseas, but then came back. I think he's still in Queens. So he's an interesting character that I think, I I believe he's still alive. I think he's still with us, but he's he's an interesting one too. And he was one of the guys too that when I researched it, Kyle, when they sold Grey Gardens, I guess it was sometime in the late 80s. If I'm not mistaken, they sell, sold it in really horrible shape to some sort of Hampton socialite slash journalist woman. Maybe she was an editor of some kind and she bought it for 220000 and I think she sold it sometime within the last five years or so for $15 million. So think of the bundle she made for, you know, yeah, for a nice little house. investment. Unbelievable.
0: Yeah. Even adjusted. I mean, even adjusted. That's 10 times plus Huge. what she paid for it. So, yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, he is an interesting character. It was interesting to read about how the filmmakers just couldn't find him. And this was obviously in the pre-internet era. And like you said, I think he lived in like Saudi Arabia and random places like that for a while, which is totally random. So, yeah, he kind of popped back up, I guess, about 10 or 15 years ago. They wrote a piece about him, I think, in The New Yorker. And then he kind of bubbled back up I think he recently released a book one of the interesting things I find about this movie too and this is just about anything old I'm really into this especially when you see old real old footage like archival footage is just old products and how things have evolved Uh, pretty prominent and these aren't product placements these are just in reality what they use but pretty prominent like we said Wonder Bread hasn't really changed very much Coca-Cola in those cans a little bit bigger than they they are now of course uh, Kleenex boxes everywhere I noticed and then one of the products that I noticed that I thought was really interesting that I didn't know existed was there were I guess at some point Kleenex branded paper towels which I was uh oh. fascinated by and you saw that there was like premium like saltines and all that kind of stuff like, there's right. a lot I don't know I always I always love looking at that kind of shit it's a good in eye these, good eye dude in these kinds of documentaries I love that stuff and then of course Big Edie's obsession with ice cream oh. and she's just always eating ice cream and <laughs> They're getting like pate and all sorts of weird stuff. And it, it does leave a lot of interesting questions just about how I'm still a little confused how they survived. And I guess, like you said, Edie moved to Florida, eventually went little Edie when she sold the house after her mom died and I guess made a little bit of money off of that. But it's just a little confusing how they managed to survive for so long. Like they 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 show a grocery delivery at some point. And I know that I guess Onassis left A little bit of money for them, but I guess they cut through it pretty quickly. So there's just a lot of questions. I I think that's one of the frustrating aspects, actually, of this kind of direct cinema documentary style is that I wish that there was a little bit more narrative structure just because it's like I want to know more about. I want to I have questions like, why can't you structure this a little bit more? I, I appreciate what they're doing, but like in the beginning of the film in the beginning of the documentary, I was pausing it constantly because they show a bunch of newspaper clippings and they show them pretty quickly. So I took like a a while to read everything that they actually showed on screen. And and like even it reminded me a lot of Attack on Titan, actually, just because Attack on Titan has those weird interstitials that go so quickly. Yes. And it actually has like all this information (laughs) in it. And I would have to like constantly pause it.
1: You have to pause it. Yeah.
0: So it's the same thing here where I was trying to pause it to get a little bit more of the story. And you do. But because they're basically using like microfiche. It's a very 70s. It's awesome. But I just don't know why they didn't structure it a little bit more. I think that might be part of Grey Garden's charm, though, is that it's just kind of a mystery at the same time. It's not like a brooding, dark murder mystery. It's not Clue or something, but it's it's a mystery. Like you, you it's just a freeze frame in time. And I guess that's what every story is. But these women are so peculiar that you're like, wow. Why didn't you release all seventy hours, whatever it is, of this footage? And let's just let's just see it all. Absolutely. And I think it just goes back. It just goes back to the fact of, you know, anything can be interesting. Anything can be interesting. I try to tell people that all the time. I, I don't. I try not to go in with preconceived notions into anything, especially with documentaries or books, like biographies, like you said, nonfiction. Just because you can really. I I brought up this example many times in the past years, but. One of my favorite nonfiction books of probably the last 10 years was The Great A&P, which is about the history of the supermarket. And it sounds like a ridiculous thing to read about. But if it's told right, it can be very fascinating. So I feel like this movie is. Yeah, I feel like this movie is kind of the same. So is there I have a few more notes, but I was wondering if you have anything else to kind of say if you wanted to bring this in any other direction.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know what? You're right about the movie being beautifully shot. You know, it's wonderfully intimate, very personal. There's a lot of warmth there. But yeah, the the narrative is sort of meandering. And it works for some reason. It's definitely a, a specific style and a specific sort of... There's def- definitely specific motifs and a way to shoot, especially a documentary film. But it would have been... Yeah, it would have been maybe a little more edifying, a little more edifying. Ah, I see what I did. Whoa. Hey, if you know, if you got a little more information out of because you want to learn more, they're so charming and they're so eccentric and they're just so weird that you just want to naturally learn more about them. Fun fact about that I found out about Edie's ice cream eating obsession. Big Edie's especially ice cream eating obsession call I saw an interview, one of the interviews that Albert Maisels did. He was a fascinating man, by the way, very articulate. And I really liked his stance on, we'll talk about this a little later before we close out, about sort of documentary filmmaking versus exploitation. And if he thought his films, particularly Great Gardens, was exploitive. And I want to get into that conversation a little bit later. But he said that Big E.D., fun fact, spent $150 a week in mid seventies money on just ice cream. And I know that that's insane. I mean, that's, that's per week. That's $150 in 1975, six, seven. That's, that's insanity. And I know they had, you know, we talk about their trust, the money that they lived off of. I know they struggled. I think the youngest son, the one son, the middle son basically wrote them off and was just like, they're basically an embarrassment. The youngest son, who also lived on Long Island, Kyle, he actually lived in Glen Cove, a very exclusive area in Nassau County, close to where our parents were from and grew up. And he spent his life in Glen Cove and basically spent a lot of his time, he was a lawyer, he was involved in law as well, very successful, very wealthy, but apparently Bouvier spent a lot of time pressing them to get out of the house. Like he wanted them to vacate Grey Gardens. He wanted them to surrender the house. He wanted them to give it up. I'm not sure to what end, but I also know at a certain point he kicked in to their trust too. Like He gave them 30000 or $60,000 to live off of as of well, basically acquiesced and helped them at some point. Although I don't think he was really an ally. I don't think you consider him an ally or a friend to his mom and his sister, but eventually he sort of rolled over and and helped them out a little bit but that's an amazing amount of money to spend on ice cream when you can't afford cat litter or when the grocer is cutting off your credit i'm not sure what of the two documentaries they say that in but they're like oh wait you know our credit's no good over there like because they're getting boxes of groceries delivered and then at a certain point big ed is like i'm hungry like i don't have anything and then it'll you know cut to a scene two day two um <laughs> like two scenes later where they're eating caviar and lobster tails and then two days later and perrier and two days later they don't have shit like they're not eating anything
0: right they, it's incredible so
1: it's like wow it's like unbelievably it's just it there's so much going on and and so many questions that you just want answered when you're watching this you know i call before we go on i just want to talk i told you i would talk about that birthday party scene and it's the only scene in the film where we do get a glimpse of Jerry, as we talked about, the assistant gardener, and they have Brooks, a guy who they consider the gardener. They keep him on to take care of, you know, maintenance around Grey Gardens. But the party scene is the only time we see outsiders in, you know, at Grey Gardens, at and amongst Grey Gardens. It's the only time we see the two Edies basically have any sort of association with any people, any outsiders that come in. We see them basically being personable, mixing it up, having a, you know, some sort of social outing with people. And it's their friends, Lois and Jack who come over. Lois plays a big part in their story later on, but Lois and Jack come over and they have cake and they celebrate Edie's. I think it's Edie's, uh, Big Edie's 79th birthday, if I'm not, um 76, uh, what is it? Yes, yeah, her 79th birthday, I think. And, it's such an interesting scene because it's the only time we see them associating with anybody. You know, they're so, you know, they're basically hermits and they're basically completely introverted. So it's a very strange scene because we see them drinking, you know, we know that they're these aristocrats. We see this gorgeous house or this once gorgeous house that's falling apart and they're eating this little tiny birthday cake and making a big deal of it. And they're eating these, you know, chips and drinking out of paper cups. And it's just like, again, it's just like, wow, like what a fall from grace. But there's, there's a charm in it because it's almost like they're not acknowledging it that way or they don't care, you know? And it's very, it speaks to, you know, maybe it speaks to us. Maybe it speaks to us as the average viewer and how highfalutin we are, you know, we're like, wow, you know, the upper, the wealthy people want to leave their, their, their wealthy lifestyle and just abandon their elite status and just basically live on shit and not even have enough groceries to survive on and it's such an interesting dynamic because a lot of it a lot of the movie and I want to talk about this more when we talk about exploitation versus just documentary filmmaking a lot of it they just seem happy you know they seem when they're reflecting especially little edie when they're reflecting and she seems miserable and she's sort of take tallying all of her losses about former bows and former opportunities that were missed out on and all this kind of stuff. That's one thing, but all in all they seem happy and that there's just such a, there's just such a bizarre thing about that, that we can't, I think most of us can not associate with that we can't recognize.
0: Yeah. I mean, to the, to the point of the birthday, I I'm fascinated by that scene because I think, um, you can see the look of kind of horror and confusion on the on the guests faces. And I'm curious, like how they even found their way there, like what went into planning and setting that up. And so I think that that's interesting. And as far as the exploitation stuff, I think that they kind of have an excuse through their their direct cinema approach to documentary filmmaking. It, it's very similar to what you see with my 600 pound life or intervention or whatever or sure. hoarders where these people are basically fucked and are getting no help from the, the people that are filming them. It's a little. I don't want to say no help. They're obviously getting help, like where they try to hook them up with doctors and all of that. But it, it is exploitative, but it's just kind of the market. It's the nature of of the way it goes. They did give them access. So they're literally being exploited for entertainment's purpose. There's no doubt about it, but it's it's done with permission. So so, yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just I'm pretty fascinated by this film and. I think this was an interesting choice for for our show, you know, a little a little touchstone for Long Island, a little touchstone for history and politics and all the rest and just some interesting storytelling, although it's not storytelling per se. It's it's just a story that we're getting a real thing that we're getting a glimpse into. But I think I find it, as I said at the top, I think I find this much more sad and harrowing than you do. Which, I mean, that's kind of the way I interpret it. I, I don't I don't quite get the funny entertainment. And I don't want to say funny, but like the entertainment entertainment out of it. I, didn't, I think it's entertaining because it's so fucking weird. But I don't know. I find it. I, fa- I find it quite sad. I think it's a great film to watch, but I think it's it's um it's mental illness in action, I think, because you're saying like, well, why would they walk away from these things? But I'm I'm of the mind that they didn't totally do that. You know, I, I'm of the mind that they were somewhat expelled, at least the older one from that life or at least that it's both it goes it kind of flows both ways
1: yeah that
0: yeah she, she could have so. had it but she didn't want it i mean there's that that's definitely true but she wasn't like just expelled she just didn't want it so i mean that's just the way it goes
1: yes i think that's why it doesn't really elicit as much sympathy for me because i really think big Edie just didn't want that i think she had it her whole life it's not like she married into it you know she was this impoverished low you know lower class poor girl that married into wealth she had it her whole life from the time she was born she was born Big biggie was born with a silver spoon in her mouth she married you know she was i'm sure she came up in those social circles and that aristocracy was expected to continue that marry wealthy and by that point she was old enough to make a choice and i think i get the sense that she was always this hippie at heart and this true bohemian this poet and just really squandered it. Like she really didn't want it. She drove her husband mad with basically rejecting all of that and to the point where he kicked her to the curb. And that's probably what she wanted. And when she, but when she realized she was going to be by herself and she didn't really have power over her sons, her sons, you know, came up in that aristocracy, pursued law, pursued the stock market, pursued journalism, pursued all the Columbia University. Everything this family was traditionally centered around from the 1800s kind of continued in that tradition. She had, the one thing she would have power over, especially the mother of the of, you know, we're talking about these specific generations, would have power over her daughter. And she did really foil her daughter's future. That's the sad part, is that little Edie was pulled into the mother's thralls and basically because the mother was so scared at a certain point that she realized she would be alone in order to ensure that she wasn't alone, basically pulled her daughter into her, into her universe and held her captive there. That's the sad part, but there's a, there's a sweetness there also because even though little Edie was sort of pulled into, you know, basically deprived of a lot of things for herself by her mother She, through it all, still loves that woman. And you see it on screen. She's extremely loyal to her mother, even though she knows, she acknowledges, she talks about it on screen. She gets angry. They get into arguments about it. That like, I could have had this. I could have had this husband. I could have had this career. I could have been at the Barbizon. You pulled me out. I could have been an actress. People were saying I was an aspiring model. People were saying, you know, Broadway was showing interest. They said I had talent. I was starting to go down that path and you pulled it all away from me. You pulled me away from this husband. You pulled me away from marrying into this family. And through that all, she's still loyal to her mother. And there's a weird sweetness there with that because you could see that there, you could understand that there would be bitterness, you know, bitterness. You could see that there would be resentment, but there really is a transcending and a transcendent love there between the two women even through all that and I think that's what makes it fascinating not only it's because these two this is not what you would expect from a normal socialite family from two women who were basically born with and were given everything and end up with nothing for whatever reason but because in the end they seemed happy and if they were exploited they seemed happy to be exploited you know you know so much about them you know it's so weird, Kyle. You know that how theatrical they are. You know the mother was like this aspiring, probably frustrated, amateur singer. And you know Edie was a really promising dancer. And the way they perform all throughout the documentary, they really basically treat the filming of the doc like a like a shoot, like they're performing for a play. You know, they're changing outfits constantly and they're singing and dancing and putting on performances and their exchanges of colorful dialogue and their sort of repartee and all that kind of stuff. It's like they're treating it like they're on stage. You know, you could see that they're really enjoying it. It's almost like everything they always wanted in life finally coming to be because two men found them fascinating enough to make a movie about. And they're, it's not, they're not getting it in the traditional way, they're not stars of the silver screen in some fictional Hollywood performance. They're not modeling. They're not singing on, you know, at the stage of Radio City. But in the end, they're kind of getting what it seems like they both always wanted. And that's pretty interesting how much they sort of revel in that in the end. And I think there's a, there's a lot of real life stuff going on there. There is a lot of melancholy things Little Edie's situation does elicit my sympathy because you don't want to see anybody dragged down by anybody else and deprived of what they really want in life, even if it was their own mother, or especially if it was their own mother. But I do get the sense that Big Edie got everything she wanted. I mean, I'm sure she would have rather gone along being sort of funded by Phelan, by her ex-husband, and you know, just being... Basically him acting as her, you know, financial support and her going along and acting like the upper class bohemian or the black sheep of the family and still being sort of and still being strung along, still being married, still having access to all the privilege, but still doing what she wanted. I'm sure she would have preferred that, but, you know, I do get the sense that Big E.D. sort of got what she deserved and the sad part for me, if anything, is little Edie and how that it would have been interesting to see how her life played out had she not been, I think, dragged down by by her mom.
0: it's yeah, interesting. Very well said. The final thing I wanted to talk about here comes from Brandon Hardman on Patreon who wrote in and said, I know this particular podcast is about the documentary, but I was curious if either of you saw the movie HBO did a few years ago. Drew Barrymore puts in a surprisingly good performance. So he's referring to the 2009 HBO film Grey Gardens with Drew Barrymore and Jessica Lange. I have not seen this yet, but I did want to acknowledge it exists. And that's another way that people have probably heard this this movie being uttered in, in previous years. Did you by chance see this one?
1: I have. I saw it when it came out. Um, I, Being such a big fan of the documentary, it's awesome. I mean, Drew Barrymore and Jessica Lange couldn't have been better cast or done a better job in this movie, and we talked about it earlier, one reason worth seeing, the documentary is better, but they do an amazing job to fictionalize it. And what's really cool about the movie, and one of the reasons why it's worth seeing is we talked about this in the beginning of the show, Kyle, what's cool about the documentary is you get that juxtaposition between the flashback photos and seeing our Big Edie and Little Edie in their past Incarnations, you know, that high society balls and glitz and glamour and fashion shoots and modeling shoots and being, you know, in their associations with all of their rich contemporaries and everything and seeing all that contrasted with now the squalor that they live in. The movie goes one step further because it goes to flashback footage. So you actually see a younger little Edie and a younger big Edie going through their things in real time, you know, their associations, their, the events that they once attended. It goes beyond just a photo because now you're seeing footage of it and it's really striking. It, it, it takes that juxtaposition one step further because you're actually seeing it play out in real time. And those flashbacks aren't just photos and newspaper clippings. It's actual, you know, it's actual stuff that you could watch and it just, it, it adds it, you know, it, it just drives it even even further home, I think, when you see that that end of it for the dramatization, the HBO dramatization.
0: Indeed. Well, yeah, I'm going to check that out. I want to check out the sequel as well. Just the uh, the 2006 documentary, The Beals of Grey Garden. I got to check that out as well. Is there any are there any closing comments that you have before we wrap this one up? You know what?
1: There's also just in uh,
0: the fiction
1: or the other stuff that Grey Gardens, the doc, the documentary spawned, there's an a Broadway and off Broadway play that I had never seen anything of it, but it was from 2006 in New York. Christine Embersall plays both Little Edie and Big Edie, and I think she won Tony Awards for it. It was very um, widely, highly touted play from the, the mid-aughts. And then there's a book. We talk about the character of Lois Wright, who's one of the birthday party attendees in the original doc- 70s documentary. She wrote a book that I'd really like to read called My Life at Grey Gardens, 13 Months and Beyond. She was an intimate friend of the Beals, but especially of Little Edie. And she was there in the Hamptons for all that. The other fascinating thing about this character is that she was, this character of Lois Wright, was an artist in the Hamptons, but she was also a, a palm reader and a tarot card reader to the stars, interestingly enough. And she had the longest running public access TV show I think of all time in New York. She ran it for 30 years out in the Hamptons. I'm not sure what she did or what she talked about. I have, I sense, I suspect that it's largely, I suspect, first of all, that you can see it on YouTube. I also suspect that it's largely about her accounts of gray gardens, which is the thing, the thing she was most known for. But she's interesting because she 30 years, a public access TV show for 30 years is striking Her last episode was filmed in 2018, so she just stopped doing the show like two years ago or so, which is really, really interesting. And the other thing I want to say is, guys and girls, that this documentary is considered on everybody's top 10 best documentaries of all time list, and it really opened up a world of documentary films for me that I may not have seen without my interest in Grey Gardens and my interest that kind of came out of documentary filmmaking. And the other thing is it made me want to film. I still think about a documentary film that I want to produce. Kyle, did I ever tell you about this? I don't know. Documentary idea I had? I don't think so. So we have an uncle. We talk about on the podcast from time to time. Uncle John Brasino. He's our Aunt Joni's husband. But Uncle John has a brother named Peter. I call him Uncle Peter. He's a good friend of mine. He may listen to the show. And Peter is a longtime professional musician. He's a guitarist and he's a gig musician. He's been playing the guitar with, you know, at clubs and at certain venues for years and years and years and filling in for big bands. And I know he was associated with Twisted Sister for a long time, especially in the New York rock scene. And I always thought he would be a fascinating figure to do a documentary on because he never, he's a professional musician, extremely talented, highly associated with a lot of who's especially in the new you know going all the way back to the ramones actually and still plays gigs at at places like bb kings and stuff like that but and also did a lot of professional gigs and advertising and for sports things and and jingles and stings and but never really broke in to the music industry in one particular way in other words he never was part of a big band like Aerosmith or broke in in that huge way, but always made his living off of music. And I always, for many years, for like 40 years or something, I always thought that would be a fascinating thing to document this professional musician who sort of made it, but never really made it type of thing. He's a fascinating and, you know, talk about another fascinating Long Island dude. He's just a really colorful guy. I don't think I ever even told him I had this idea for this documentary. But this is the thing. These are the seeds, you know, Grey Gardens and all the things that I saw early on as a result of Grey Gardens were the seeds, you know, planted a lot of creative seeds for me. And it's a it seems like an offbeat topic for Knockback, but I would definitely say this is a must see like any other fictional nerd centric sci fi or otherwise movie that we've seen. I I would put it right up there with Karate Kid and Star Wars and Indiana Jones and all those other must see things that we talk about on the show. I think it's just I just think it's a must see. I think it's really I think it really informs a side of me that might have gone otherwise untapped had I not seen it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was an offbeat. It is an offbeat topic for our show, but I'm glad that you selected it. I think that there's plenty of room for us to have. Programming like that, and hopefully it turned a lot of people on to Gray Gardens. Like you said, it's on YouTube. That's where I watched it, but apparently it's also on HBO Max. If you are a subscriber to that. So you can go check that out. And of course, if you're a physical media person, you can just go and figure that out as you usually would. So that's it, Dick. How do you want to wrap this episode up?
1: All right, my friend. So I have some parting, some parting shots for me for this show. I thought we could do a fond farewell to Grey Gardens. I also want to give you guys a quick briefing. I wanted to mention. So before November's out in the next couple of weeks or so, I'll be, will be piloting a brand new closing segment. It's another audience participation segment, but different, definitely decidedly different than fan versus fan, but I know it'll be a lot of fun. So in the next couple of weeks, we'll do a sort of maiden voyage. And if it all works out and it passes all the litmus tests, we'll set sail in the new year with the full segment. So something to look forward to, but we'll be sort of running our, our initial run of the segment in the next couple of weeks, I think it'll be really fun. Colin and I had mentioned we're going to probably steer away from doing too much. We'll have an opening conversation. We'll just have some fun banter, something to open the show with, and just a little bit of a warm up for Colin and I to get our voices ready to do our topic. But we'll basically be abandoning the opening segment at least for a little while. But we'll go out with a closing segment, something that could be a little fun to go out on each show each week. So just to remind you guys, that's going to happen. But Kyle, I just have a a fond farewell, sort of a few tidbits and questions about Grey Gardens and documentaries in general. So Kyle, I wanted to ask you, if you had to make a documentary, you got the opportunity to make a documentary film. What would be a great topic for a documentary?
0: There aren't very many great American Revolution documentaries, like really meaty, 20-hour Ken Burns style. Mm. documentaries about it. And I think I would love to to do that or I'd love to see that. I don't think I'd be capable of doing it, but that's awesome. Yeah. Like, you know, you know, there's Ken Burns Civil War. There's Ken Burns baseball and all that. And they're awesome. I mean, baseball is what fucking 14 hours long or something like that. And, And these are great documentaries. Civil War is way longer than that. It's probably twice that long. So that would be fun. That would be a fun topic. What was coming to mind for me was Apollo and like space travel and stuff. But there are quite a few good documentaries about that
1: already. Okay, makes sense.
0: But it's funny, man. It's weird. Like what you can find. Just speaking of this, I'm watching that documentary on Netflix right now called The Keepers, which came out a couple of years ago. It's about a, a school in Maryland where these priests were like raping wimp girls in the 60s and 70s. Oh, shit. And it's really dark. I'm not saying it's not it's not a fascinating topic. The point is, is that it's like seven hours long and it's just it's fascinating because it's, it's just well done. And so you can take anything like that and kind of, I get, I'm actually at the point now where I, I look for things like documentaries and stuff and they're like, oh, it's 90 minutes long. And I'm like, eh. You know, I need it, I need it to be 10 hours long over seven episodes or I'm not satisfied with Wow. That's interesting. Because TV, there's no reason for finite storytelling anymore. This is why I love films, but TV is where it's at. Like the ability to tell the story as long as it needs to be. Sure. And I love that idea with documentaries and there aren't very many do- a lot. Of, there's a lot of mini series documentaries and they're awesome. Like the people versus OJ Simpson was fucking awesome. And there's a lot of really great ones, but it would be cool to have something. Yeah. From the Amrev, as we used to call it in my <laughs> studies.
1: That's it, That's it. That's definitely. Now, let me ask you this. What's more? Di- what would be more difficult in your purview? Would it be more difficult to tell a story in a block of you know an hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours, or to have the luxury of having more time, whether it's you know whether it's indefinite or whether it's an eight episode hour, you know each one being an hour long, like a true detective type formula, which one do you think would be the easiest to write for?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think that there's there's advantages and disadvantages to both. You can give yourself enough rope to hang yourself with by giving yourself too much time. Sometimes it's good to work within a finite limit. Like I've I've a good example is Twitter has made my writing much tighter because you have to make it tighter. Yes. to fit. Yes. And it's funny. We have, what, 240 characters now. It's crazy that Twitter used to be or whatever it used to be like half of what it is now. It's amazing. I came <laughs> and write amazing. It's like crazy. It's It's really crazy when you think about it because I couldn't write a tweet that short anymore. But that's all we used to be able to do so so yeah, uh, yeah, any other questions to uh
1: yeah, yeah, to we have to? some defi- yeah, it's interesting to me, I think you could get I'm thinking about writing I, I you know, I write so much i I write a lot for a living too, i you know I work on books part time and stuff like that, but it's it's interesting to me, like I think you could get so indulgent if you're given a lot of time, but writing for a shorter amount you know length of time, like a feature film, for instance. I think you have to be really disciplined, which I think will be difficult. So yeah, I, I don't know that that is a that is a tough one. Now, Kyle, we talk about versus battles here. Do you go team Little Edie or team Big Edie? Who's the who's your who's the more who
0: car which character do you like better? I guess I think Big Edie. I'm going to be t- team Big Edie personally. Oh, interesting. Now, why do you fall? Yeah. Why do
1: you uh, come down to Big Edie? What what is it with her that you find appealing?
0: Yeah, I just think. Uh I don't know. She's like, she's the maestro. She's kind of the one. She's really the, the truly interesting and bohemian person. I think Little Edie's interesting, but as we kind of established, I think that she's sort of the, the victim. Absolutely. You
1: know? Yeah. Yeah. She's lost. I think along the line somewhere, Little Edie probably lost herself. You know, she was, you know, she was a prisoner. You know, basically, I mean, you, you could certainly, it would be interesting to have this conversation with even more than just you and I, because I would like to see how other people sort of construe it. But yeah, I could definitely see that. I could I could see the appeal of both characters. They're both, they're both quite charming. That's the thing. They both have that, you could see, especially Little Edie, you know, she has all the intonations and inflections, the way she talks. It gives her so much character. You know, you could see that prep school, finishing school, sort of socialite, wealthy, elite sort of training, for lack of a better word, or education there with her. You know, she's interesting. And then also, you know, Big E.D. has that too in some ways. With Big E.D., it's interesting that Big E.D. is the elder, but maybe has a little bit less of that polish, which is interesting. And I I agree with you. I think that's the result of really being that true OG bohemian, you know, for sure. Absolutely. Now, Kyle, if you had to think of just one specific documentary or documentary series, what's your favorite of all time,
0: Ken Burns' Civil War is probably my favorite documentary. But there are a shit ton of great documentaries. I mean, there there are scores and scores and hundreds of awesome documentaries. You you can watch nothing but documentaries on Netflix and Amazon, and and if you're me, you'd be perfectly happy. But.
1: <laughs> and they are it's it's and
0: you know they scratch
1: the other thing about documentaries versus all the nerd fiction that we we normally talk about or feature films or blockbusters, action films, superheroes, Star Wars, all that stuff. It really the documentary thing for me, and I'm sure you feel the same way, Kyle, it scratches a different itch. You know, it, it it's more edifying sometimes in an educational way. And just hearing like you said, I know you're of a you're of a similar mind to me, of hearing the same thing with reading a good biography. It's just Like you said earlier, it doesn't matter what it is or what it's about or even who it's about. It's just about getting the sense of somebody's passion, sort of reveling in somebody's passion. Like, I'm not a musician, but I love to hear a guy like Keith Richards talk about music because he, besides being a crazy person, Keith Richards is passionate about music, you know? And I just love everybody that, you know, people that just just embrace a passion, that passion is contagious. That's really what I get out of docs. That's what I get out of biographies. And there's just, they're just so many good ones. There's just so many good ones. All right, my friend. Now, we talked about this a little bit already. We don't have to stay on it long. And that is the question of gray gardens and whether it's exploitive or not. And Albert, you know, I, I listened to a lot of interviews, as many as I could with Albert Maisels. And He had a great, he he was asked this time and time again since Grey Gardens came out. And, you know, his other earlier documentaries as well. He's been cutting, he's been filming documentaries since the 50s. So he was already 20 years into his career when Grey Gardens came out. But he was asked this at length. You know, it it was a prominent question on his list of questions that he had to deal with. You know, are you exploiting these people that you film? And he came up with a great thing that spoke to me in that he related it to passing a drunkard On the street, when you're walking down the street, and there's a man or woman rolling around in the gutter, drunk, homeless person or otherwise, you could step over that person, ignore them, act like they're not there, or you can basically, you know, not not embrace them, but you could acknowledge them. You could talk to them. You could find out their story. And he said, maybe one of the reasons why that person is there is because they don't. They didn't get the attention or they don't get the attention. Maybe once you learn their story, it would help that person. Maybe it would be cathartic for them. Maybe it would get them help depending on who they were talking to. And I thought that was really, really interesting. The interesting thing about this film is that it does feel exploitive to me in some way. Because when you're starting a documentary like this, you could have conversations at length. You could plan it. You could plan it with your subject so on and so forth, right? But once that camera starts filming, that's when the documentary starts. That's when the realness takes place. There's really no telling what's going to happen once the filming, once the shooting starts rolling, once those cameras get rolling. And you never know how it's going to go. And you never know how the subject is going to react. You never know what's going to take place. You never know what they're going to be comfortable with. So it has to be, to me, in a sense... It's kind of lying to say it's not exploitive from the start, because at least from the start, it's going to be exploitive. The thing that makes Grey Gardens, again, not feel exploitive is the fact that the two subjects, the two primary subjects, really seem to enjoy being on film and telling their story and getting a chance to perform and getting a chance to tell maybe their side of the story and maybe getting a chance to uh, have a release and have some little lady having a cathartic sense of being able to tell what she was frustrated about and all of that. But just the fact that they embraced it doesn't mean it isn't exploitive, if, th- if that makes sense. How do you feel about that, Kyle?
0: Yeah, it's like I said earlier. I think that it's inherently exploitative, but but that's just the nature of this t- style of documentary. Like, everyone is in on it. So it's, it's literally exploitative, but it's... That's the way it goes. I mean, it's not like they're it's not like a voyeuristic or anything like that. Sure. No, no. Everyone's no. everyone's in on it and that's that's it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, the Mazels seem pretty actually. That's something I noticed in my my latest watching. They seem pretty intent on not being sort of yeah, it's not being voyeuristic. They shoot they try to shoot from the waist up. They're not doing any fishy sort of angles to show anything they shouldn't be showing, especially when little Edie's dressed in more revealing clothing. There's a there's definitely a classy approach to the filmmaking, and I, I understand. I, I don't think that they want to exploit their subjects. I think their level of filmmaking is above that. But I'm just talking about documentary filmmaking in general. I think there is, you know, cert, it deals with exploiting a subject, and I think that's just part of it. And I think there's a way to do it and not to do it. So that if that makes sense, but I think they were amongst. The best. And I know they, they inspired many documentary filmmakers to come. Now, Kyle, let me ask you this question. Given the opportunity, if this makes sense, would you buy Gray Gardens itself or an anonymous house nearby in the Hamptons of similar value, but not historical Gray Gardens? In other words, would you prefer the history or the anonymity?
0: Oh, no, I'd rather have an anonymous big house out there be awesome that's interesting yeah I don't need great gardens especially because the original great gardens is it was not uh, the house is not even that old it was just not kept up well so none of its original it's not like buying like an original colonial or something that has like the real wood from the 1700s and stuff that's different sure this thing is to the studs is totally not the same house and it's not even that old to begin with I think it was built in 1890s or something like that not even maybe even later than that yeah maybe it's not like it's like an it's not even it's it's not even an ancient house so, yeah, I would rather have a more anonymous life personally.
1: That style of colonial is so timeless. It's still probably amongst my favorite type of designs for a house. And you talk about the gray. I know they said the dunes were gray. And that house specifically was a block from the ocean. So you have that gray ocean mist coming in. And they say it had the gray concrete walls initially. And you had talked about something very, an aesthetic that's very specific to Long Island although it's not exclusive to Long Island, is the cedar shake, you know, the traditional cedar shingles on a house, which the house we grew up in, in Brookhaven had those initially on the house as well. And those orange cedar shakes, eventually they weather and they turn to a gray, a gray-like patina. And it's such a specific aesthetic to Long Island that I love. You know, I love the cedar shake. I love the weathered gray. cedar shake shake. and really that gray, you think about the Hamptons, especially in the autumn and the winter, you know, everything just takes on the the look of gray. You have the gray skies, the stormy skies, the color of the water, again, the fog. When the house is gray, you really can sense that, you know, it's such a a visual, visceral thing to have that Long Island gray. It just really makes me miss home, especially this time of year. As of the time of this recording, you know, autumn and winter, it takes on a very, I think it's really an aesthetic specific to the Northeast, but especially of Eastern Long Island. Just that really gray, overall gray look that I love.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I love the name, like the, the, the name of the, I always love the name of estates and how they come to be.
1: It's so cool. All right, my, now <laughs> let me ask you this question as we wrap up here. Get close to wrapping up. Now, if our sisters, Allie and Dana, and our mom decided to hole up together and isolate themselves in a remote house on the beach would you f- would you basically frame them to have them evicted and or refuse to help them financially
0: i don't know i guess it depends i mean i'd like to be able to help my family so they can live their bohe- their strange bohemian lives <laughs>
1: you would try to you would try to be the benefactor to, to their strange hippie lifestyle
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's a little bit yeah it's a little weird you know um but if that's what made them happy then I would try to try to help out.
1: That's sweet. That's definitely sweet. All right, my friend. This is this is going to be one. You're going to have to dig down deep for this one. We talked about the filth. <laughs> the squalor that the two our two EDs lived in, especially that bedroom. It's pretty it's pretty rough in there, man, with the fleas and the cat shit. I mean, how about that part where Little Edie's like, oh, I think the cat's going to the bathroom behind your portrait. You know, Big Edie's like, oh, at least somebody's doing what they want to do. Right. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) So good. It's awesome. But would you rather sleep? Now, visualizing that bedroom, and let's face it, we love our Edies, but the filth. Would you rather sleep on Big Edie's mattress or in the attic with the raccoons?
0: Oh, I'll take Big Edie's mattress, I think. I don't want to be around the raccoons, <laughs> The raccoons <personally>. are dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to I don't want trifle with them. I don't have a trifle with them.
1: <laughs> all right, my friend. Last one. Kyle, how many cats? No, well, let me start by saying this. Legend has, it. I don't know if Lois Wright or, or uh, Jerry Torrey or somebody said this specifically. Maybe it was Maisels, Albert Measles himself, but they said at a all-told, Throughout the history of the Beals, the two Edies at Grey Gardens, there were 2,000 cats in total over the years, over the 50 years or whatever. Kyle, when you're living in a home like our two Edies, how many cats is too many?
0: A 28-room house. 28 um, rooms. I, I, I still think that having more than like three cats is too much for anyone. <laughs> yeah. So two is the max. Yeah. Well, three would be the max. I think three would be the max. One to three is fine. You know, I think any more than that is a little nuts. In my opinion. Yeah. each his own.
1: That's reasonable. I mean, that's definitely reasonable. Yeah. I've known people with many, many more cats than that at one time, but it's completely reasonable. I understand that. for Sure.
0: By the way, what happened with your cat? I noticed your Twitter on your, you, t- you oh. tweeted something about your,
1: <laughs> well, my cat has a thing now. Our cat is Lilia's cat. Very pretty cat. It's a ragdoll cat, which I believe you cat people out there may correct me, but I believe the ragdoll is a cross between the Siamese and the Himalayan. I believe that's what it is. So it's a long haired cat with a really, a very pretty long haired cat with a very shitty attitude, hence the Siamese. Known for that. Known to be just shitty cats. You know, bad personalities, very standoffish, a little bratty, whatever you want to call it. So it's actually Lilia's cat. We got the cat from a breeder. The, cat pre- the cat's very mean to Kiki, very mean to our dog. Now, I could kind of buy that and I could kind of accept that because the cat was here first and animals could be territorial. And the cat, Kiki will be here three years in December. I think three years in February it'll be. So, almost going on three years, and the cat's never really taken a shine to Kiki. They're never going to get. Kiki wants to play. The cat treats the dog like shit. The cat just wants to completely ignore the dog. That's fine. I could accept that because Tessa was here first. But the thing that Tessa does to me is that she she doesn't like the dustbuster. So when I dust bust, she gets very standoffish and she hisses. I understand the dustbuster scares her a little bit. But what it's evolved into is that any time Tessa sees me holding anything, she hisses at me. It could be a book, it could be <laughs> a pencil. it could be as, as there's any a piece of candy, if there's anything in my hand, if she sees, sees my hand not at rest with all five fingers flailed out, she hisses at me, thinking this must, you must be holding some semblance of a dustbuster. I don't get it at all. But the cat hisses at me nonstop, which has gotten me a little resentful. So the tweet was just a release saying this cat is the worst cat. Now Tessa comes off of a, we had a a cat that had passed away right before we got Tessa, or a couple our previous cat. Her name was Cece, and she was a sweetheart. And she was my shadow. And She really loved me. She would sit on my lap for the entire ball game. She was a snuggler. She was a love. She never bothered anybody. She, I never heard her hiss. She was the complete antithesis or Tessa is the complete antithesis of Cece. So I just had the Twitter thing was a release. Also, I know Lily is not going to look at Twitter. So I was able to do that without getting in trouble. I couldn't put that on Instagram, for instance, because Lily might see it then. Um, she's probably listening at the door. So she probably knows that I said it now. But the yeah, so that's uh, that's my cat thing. But one, I always we had two cats previously. They were a brother and a sister. I found the brother. Cece was great. Her brother was a pain in the ass. And so now two cats seems like a bridge too far to me. One cat and one dog seems fine. We just got a hamster. Lilia just got a hamster. So now we have another pet in the equation. Graydon has a couple of fish. What's
0: what's the hamster's name? The
1: hamster's name is, it's three names in one. It's, It's Bert, Draco, after Draco Malfoy, of course. Bert Draco something. I don't think she named it Burt Draco Malfoy. Lilia always has three names for something because she can't, she can't boil it down to one name. So she has to think of all three of her best ideas and just merge it into one. So now we have the hamster. The hamster is actually quite cute. I have to say, he's a, he's a cute little guy. Makes a lot of noise at night with the wheel, though. You know, running on oh, the I wheel. Oh, I bet
0: he's, staying, he's exercising and doing all those things. You know, they, the cardio is
1: important in the hamster world. It's very...
0: I, I was surprised though about the the Tessa thing. I mean, I know that that she's standoffish, but I have a pretty good relationship with that cat. I think so. Or she's have, nice to you. Had a good relationship. Yeah, I I, I pet her and, you know, yeah, yeah. You're not so. the
1: dust, but you don't have you don't control the dustbuster in the house. I think, and it's just me. She doesn't have any. She doesn't like the dog. She doesn't like me because of the dustbuster, but everybody else in the house, she's totally fine with. You know.
0: Yeah, but, that's
1: all right. Yeah, it's all right. You listen not everybody could love me. I mean, I'd settle for 99.9%. It's totally.
0: Sure. That's pretty good. Well, is that everything? Yeah, that's it. That's the last. All right, perfect. Well, that's it then for our episode about Grey Gardens. Again, go check it out on YouTube, HBO Max, et cetera. You have those options. Thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins Last and for early ad free access to our show, the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas, topic ideas, etc we couldn't do it without you we thank you very much and we'll see you next time for more knockback until then goodbye we can't go out without a dad joke are you crazy oh wait sorry oh wait oh yeah oh sorry no never mind yeah dad joke i got go two, ahead. Kyle. i got two this is a treat oh i'm sorry yeah why didn't you interrupt me there and kind of interrupt oh, me a little
1: what's it a, a, what's a it di- listen this is uh this is how we do it this is natural it's a, it's the, the natural cadence of the show call did you hear about the chameleon who couldn't change color? No. He had a reptile dysfunction. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: that's a good one. I like that one. All right. Now tell
1: one. me if you've heard this one before. Kyle, I tell dad jokes, but I don't have any kids. I'm a faux pas. Uh,
0: that's good. Those, are pretty, those are pretty good ones. Not bad. Those are pretty good ones. Yeah, not bad at all. Not bad at all. Very well done. Thank you, my all friend. All right, Dave. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate you, as always. Thank you. It was and, fun. Uh, and thank you all out there. I already say goodbye to you, so I'll just say it all again. And uh, well, I won't say it all again, actually. I lied. <laughs> goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Richmond, Virginia and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at No Taxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Casual Misfits Gaming, Nick DeMarco, Constantine Valencia, an unofficial controller podcast, Andrew Morgan, Gregory Slavinsky, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Zach Parsley, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Ben, Azan, Isaac Wasteman, Michael Vecchio, Brianne, Joey Finelli, Jerome Ferreira, SL the FMA, Ryan T. Mandel, Jorge Palomino, Paul Joyce, Enrique Perez, Don Lee, Daniel Diamore, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Homeworld Hub, 3Dprintshop.com, Chris Buston, Nick Thornton, Betty Ann Moriarty, Colin Jewell, Nelson LeBlanc, Daniel Johnson, Zach Bonham, Jay Getter, Terrell Parson, Vexius, Jeff Mercado, Galja, Darren Gardner, Of Fortuna, Boots, Megadeth, Sal Balcazar, Raul Melendez, Bloody Fang, Eric Harden, Matt Martin, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, TB Lightning, Anti Kinnan, Taylor Barkley, Chris Galvin, Ryan Murdoch, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Chris Buston, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., Damon Weathers, Carl Tolman, Richter 86, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVayo, Kevin Komaki, Blake Israel, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelik, Brian Chan, Connor Gashian, Organic Produce, Mubarak, Carlos Algarit, McDog 18, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Ray Leja, David Castanez, Donnie Nolan, Josh Yeager, Toothless Gibbon, Martin Beck, Gavin, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Sci Fi Book Club, Lawrence F. Prokop, Colin Daven, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lou and Ray Loper, Dylan Burns, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Yusuf, Anton Kay, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixie, Corey Wyatt, James Kinslow III, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, William O'Carroll, jsco 828 Jesper Jansen, Phil Krohn, Throw 7 Mike Wayne, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Jesse Owens, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Sean Chandler, Petro Rose, Gio Corsi, Greg Lada, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, Chad Lewis, Todd Paxton, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, John Cordero, Greg Julefs, Mark Boggio, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Peterson, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Toby Schutman, Patrick Harper, Madmock Media, and Jonathan Rice.